This is your public radio station for more than three decades, KUAF on 91.3 FM and available anywhere with the KUAF iPhone app. And this is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, October 20th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Ahead on today's show, Pastor Clint Schneckloth gives us another autumn reading recommendation. Leah Uribe brings us our weekly dose of sound perimeter, and we'll bring you some live music options for the next several days. We begin today's show, though, with a look at opioids and overdoses. A rally was held last month in Fayetteville to draw attention to overdose deaths in our region. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith brings us this story. Trigger warning, the following audio contains content about drug usage, death, and overdoses. Over 107,000 people have died from drug overdoses in America in 2021. That's the same number as the population in Fayetteville, only you'd be short 10,000 people to make up that same figure. The latest CDC data from 2021 shows that 546 people in Arkansas died from drug overdoses, and that number is growing. Over half of those deaths involved opioids and mostly synthetically made ones. So what's going on here? Now, drug overdoses aren't new, but the strength and addictiveness of newer drugs like fentanyl and synthetic opioids are new and have propelled this epidemic to unforeseen levels. Now, what we're seeing is that the drugs that are coming into the illicit marketplace now are stronger and stronger. Fentanyl maybe being 100 times stronger than morphine. So this, these stronger drugs are much more risky because if people take too much, they overdose more quickly. Um, Opioids, the whole class, they they make you have less pain and make you feel better. That's why people get addicted. Uh, Unfortunately, with these illicit drugs that are at such a high potency level, it can suppress your respiratory system much faster and people overdose and die because they quit breathing. That's Dr. Joe Thompson, the president and CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. We know that Arkansas had the second highest opioid prescription rate of any state in the nation just a few years ago. And so I think it's likely that we have more exposure to this problem than some other states. I think going forward, you know, the illicit drugs are nationwide. Uh, It is going to be an issue that the nation as a whole has to take into account. But I think we can do better here locally. And there are groups across the state trying to do so. To shed light on the growing epidemic of drug overdoses, advocacy groups speak up about drugs held a rally last month outside the coroner's office in Fayetteville. The focal point of the event, a yards-long mural with a portrait of every victim who died of an overdose that year. In the sea of pictures is also one of Tristan Algair, a then 21-year-old who died in 2017. Tristan's loved ones described him as a clean-cut, smart, adventurous spirit with dreams and a love of the outdoors. I spoke with his mom, Gina Algair, director and founder for Speak Up About Drugs, who organized the rally. She showed me where Tristan's picture was on the mural and shared his story with me and how he inspired Speak Up About Drugs. Actually, um, five years ago this week, started Speak Up About Drugs after losing my oldest son, Tristan Thomas, to um, what I was calling overdose until recently, and have started calling drug-induced homicide, basically drug poisoning, because that's what it is. Um, he, his drug of choice really was Xanax and um, Adderall and marijuana. He started with marijuana, then started buying um, Adderall pills from friends and then got into Xanax um, to balance, I guess, himself out. But he died when he used cocaine that was unknowingly laced with fentanyl. And that's actually what took his life. It just, you know, so, so that happened. And um, that uh, August 31st for International Overdose Awareness Day, I went down to Little Rock. My husband and I went to Little Rock and met with the Attorney General. And then we went over to the Capitol for their Overdose Awareness Day event, and the DA director at the time and the drug director at the time both got up and spoke. And it was just so powerful. And I just, I remember sitting on the Capitol steps and I just thought, okay, I need to do something. I need to help other people. And, um, came home and realized that, you know, I'd had this big career in marketing, 
corporate America for all these years, and I just realized I had all the skills and tools I needed to do this work. And so I stood in the kitchen one day, and I said, all right, God and Tristan, if there's work to be done, just open the doors and I'll do it. And the doors just started flying open. And um, it's not necessarily what I want to be doing, but it's the important work that has to be done to really create change. And that cycles all the way back to what the Attorney General's office told me that very first day. So I feel like I've kind of come full circle. It's like, okay, I'm seeing now we've done a lot of really powerful, great work to help people get into treatment. So we've done a lot of great work with all of that, but, you know, it's really the legislation. And so we've done some work in that area. Um, But here in Northwest Arkansas, I mean, thankfully, we haven't had a big contention appearance until the last few years who have lost their kids to drug, you know, drug use. But here in this area, we just haven't had a higher concentration until now. And there have been more and more deaths in this area. Um, Unfortunately, sadly, the numbers are really escalating and have over the last two years since December of 2020. And um, so now we have parents who, you know, want to work in this space, who want their voices to be heard, who want you know, to, like us, encourage investigation of every overdose. Among the many emotions and grief experienced by the families, many name the legal process surrounding their loved one's overdose as a top frustration. Currently, Arkansas does not require a full investigation into a suspected overdose death. We've done a lot of work with the drug director's office and... Um, CJI and Little Rock to train and train law enforcement on how to investigate overdoses. That wasn't happening when Tristan died. You know, I was sent that home. That was circa when? 2017. 2017. He died here in Fayetteville, and you know, I was we were sent home with his cell phone and his computer and all his belongings, and so it was up to me to investigate his death. And so, you know, after the third or fourth morning, um. I woke up and I just, every morning, I just was on this mission to find out what happened. And I would dig through his computer and his phone. But the reality was, the second I opened his laptop, it was all right there. And the second I got into his text messages, I saw what I needed to know. And then I hacked, you know, I got into his Snapchat and found out more information. But, like, literally, it was all there. For Gina's line of work, there are many goals. To work with families, provide resources to those in need and save lives whenever they can along the way. But what she thinks could make a big difference in this epidemic, actually opening investigations when overdoses occur. To me, that's what's gonna really make a lot of change is when every overdose, lethal or not, fatal or not, is investigated and law enforcement can get to the dealers and get these dealers off the streets. And then we have legislation that can hold them accountable. You know, if a person is dealt or delivered a deadly drug that results in a homicide, then they need to be held accountable. Now, I say all that, and the reality is it's very complex. There's, you know, there's causation, and there's, it's really hard for law enforcement to get to who the dealer is, you know, how far back were the drugs cut, how many times were they cut? It, it, it's hard. So I do have a respect for that. I do understand that. Um, but we are having success with that across the country. And there was even a case here recently where a person who died you know, from drugs that were delivered to her, that person was held accountable. We know it can be done. It's just you know figuring it out and passing the correct legislation to make it happen. And so... Um, now we've got, you know, Jenny and Carrie and Terry and, you know, there's, there's more. There's others that couldn't be here today, but we have others who want to help, you know, further this work. And so that's why we're here today. She told me about the impact of her son's loss and what life has been like after. You know, selfishly for me, I, I, wish, I wish a million times over that these moms had not lost their kids. Um, but I'm also glad that there are other parents here now who, who can walk this journey with me and we can do good work together. We can band together. Yeah. 
and yeah. relate in a way that many other people can't. Yeah, you know, I certainly don't hold it against anybody. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want anybody to know this pain or to be on this journey. Um, but it is hard. It's hard to relate to people in my everyday life anymore. I don't... Um, you know, I still look like me. Sometimes I even still act like me. I, I go and do things, and I just, most of the time I just don't feel like me. I don't feel comfortable anymore um, because people can't understand. You know, they don't understand why if I hear some song on the radio, I immediately start crying. I, the other night there was this song that came on, and before the words even were said, the second the music started and that vibration started, that vibration just triggered my memories of Tristan. And that was a song that he loved. And I just immediately just welled up and felt sick at my stomach and my heart started racing. I started getting clammy. And, you know, people just look at me like, oh, God, she's going to cry or, oh, no, what happened? You know, driving past the coroner's office or driving past the apartment where, you know, we found this body or going and doing things that he used to love to do or you know the other night my husband and I were out and my husband was talking to this young young man and I bebopped over ready to say hi and talk to him and the first thing my husband said was this is so and so and he used to work with Tristan and I just I I said I go oh and I just let out this exhale and I just oh you know oh okay um, it's just hard because you, you feel like you're walking alone most of the time. I know that's not true. It just feels like it. It just, this is my reality until the day I leave this earth. And whether it's today, in one year, in 30 years, and so much has happened since he left and so much will happen, you know, in all those years to come that he won't be a part of. So I have an empty chair. And Jenny has an empty chair, and Terry has an empty chair, and Carrie has an empty chair, and all of us have an empty chair. And that empty chair is empty all the time. It's all right if I give you a hug. I mean, that empty chair is, it's empty at birthdays, it's empty at graduations, it's empty on a regular Sunday morning having breakfast. And you, like, don't even, right? You know, you just look over where they should be and they're not there. And, um, you know, it, it gets, it doesn't get easier, it gets different. Um, I understand that now. Um... And literally the only time I feel whole and in some semblance of real happy and joy is when I'm doing this work. It's when we're helping people. It's when we're making a difference. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. That story is from the first episode of a KXUA 88.3 podcast named Drugged Up, produced by Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Theater Squared presents Detroit 67, a funny, fiery drama set to a Motown beat. In 1960s Detroit, siblings open an after-hours joint in their home to make ends meet. Filled with humor, history, and heart, this award-winning play is on stage through November 6th, 777-7477, or theater2.org for tickets. Support for KUAF comes from the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville. The museum is hosting a Dia de los Muertos festival with free admission November 5th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This celebration of life features food, music, and more. Information at monah.org. The Alma Education and Arts Foundation presents Call of the Wild, Illustrated Edition, at the Skokus Performing Arts Center, Thursday, November 3rd at 7 p.m. Group ticket rates are available. Tickets at 479-632-2129 or skokuspac.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Title IX has spent most of 2022 being celebrated for 50 years of empowerment and success 
for its prohibition of discrimination in schools and education programs on the basis of sex. The title reads, quote, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. President Joe Biden announced in June a proposal to expand and clarify the text of Title IX to include protections against discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity in addition to sex. The U.S. Department of Education says, quote, they would make clear that preventing someone from participating in school programs and activities consistent with their gender identity would cause harm in violation of Title IX, except in some limited areas set out in the statute or regulations. But in September, Governor Asa Hutchinson held a press conference to announce that he was opposed to this amendment of Title IX which would violate our law that prohibits biological males from competing in women's sports. The state has expressed our opposition in two ways. First, uh, Secretary Key and our Department of Education has submitted comments in opposition to the changes. Secondly, I applaud the Attorney General for her leadership uh, that she's filed a response with other Attorney Generals opposing the new rules. Let's examine the law that the governor is referencing here. Act 953 is called the Gender Integrity Reinforcement Legislation for Sports, or Girls Act. This act was passed during the 2021 regular session and says that any elementary school, high school, secondary school, or post-secondary school that is located in Arkansas and receives state funds or competes in interscholastic sports prohibits trans student athletes from playing on a gendered sports team that matches their gender identity. It also states that the attorney general may bring a cause of action in the event that this law is violated. I could not find any instances of a trans student athlete in the state of Arkansas. I reached out to five of the largest school districts in Northwest Arkansas, and not a single school said that, to their knowledge, there was even one trans student athlete playing a gendered sport. I also reached out multiple times to both Governor Asa Hutchinson and Attorney General Leslie Rutledge, asking if they had any data on the number of trans student-athletes in Arkansas, but neither of them replied to my emails. Megan Tullock is the Director of Programs and Advocacy for Northwest Arkansas Equality, and she puts into context this topic by first talking about the number of trans students there are in the state. Uh, we, we don't have a great idea of that. We have some people who have tried to triangulate it from other numbers. There are about 15 million high school students in the country, um, and about 8 million of them, so slightly under half, slightly over half, participate in high school sports. In 2019, we estimated that there are, that about slightly under 2% of high school kids are transgender, so that's about 270,000 transgender students in U.S. high schools generally, um, and about, and and then we estimate that 14% of trans boys and 12% of trans girls play sports. So that's about 35,000 total transgender athletes in high school. And, and I'm going to come back and compare that to that 15 million number um, of, of total high school A percent kids. of a percent of yes, a percent. Yes, it's 0.44% of high school athletes are trans. Governor Hutchinson also made note that these changes would violate Arkansas law that prohibits trans women from competing in women's sports. And he actually used the problematic language of biological males when mm -hmm. referring to these uh, students instead of trans women. Yeah. I mean, I think we have a we have a long way to go around believing that trans people exist. I think that that use of that language says, I think, very clearly communicates the idea that that trans people are delusional, right? That that this is a biological male, right, who is is sick and believes is like is is delusional and believes that that he's a girl. I mean, I that's that's not true. Like that's not what trans girls are, but I think that we have we have a lot of distance to travel in that conversation. Um, and I think it 
comes to a head in pieces of legislation like this where I think people who don't believe in trans existence don't want to enable it and they really want to find ways to kind of deter trans existence. I think there are a lot of complex reasons for that, but I think that there, as we mentioned, like there are very few, if any, trans athletes that this is currently impacting in Arkansas, but it does communicate to trans people of all ages, to their parents, that, that they don't belong, that we don't believe them, that we don't, that we don't want them. Tulloch says she believes politicians and leaders making these decisions are losing sight of the goal of amateur sports. One of the, the most important things to consider here is what, what sports are really for in school. Um, I think, you know, we, we think about the Olympics and these like where, where so much of the point is winning and losing in records. And I just the, the reason that we have sports and extracurricular activities generally in school is to give kids a sense of belonging, to give them a chance to make friends, to give them a chance to build components of their character like persistence um, to learn how to try even when it's hard. Right. Like that's that's why we have that to give kids a, what practice at, at teamwork and stuff. I mean, all kinds of things that we need all people to be able to do in the world and stealing that opportunity from trans kids is really it's really not OK. The language that we often hear from uh, political leaders in this realm is fairness when it comes to women's sports as someone who played sports as a woman. Do you think there's any there's any validity to this idea that sports aren't fair for women? I mean, sports sports are for women are not equitably supported. Um, Title IX set out to correct that. We're not there. Um, I think you can look all over at ways that women support women's sports are not funded and respected and watched in the same ways that men's sports are. I think that once you start to really dig into where policy should be around where the line is between male and female, like who's participating in women's sports, you learn a lot about science. Um, I, there have been track and field athletes who are assigned female at birth, who have XX chromosomes, and who have levels of male hormones that make them crush the competition, you know, and their bodies naturally produce that. So there's just, and like, would that athlete be just like an incredibly blessed and excellent female athlete whose body is naturally producing the stuff that makes her um, really fast and strong? Or is that someone who we would make compete as a man if we're going to do hormone level tests? I mean, I think, I think that we like to think of science as really, really simple. And it's, it's, not, it's not simple. Like the, the science of gender is really simple. If you had a chance to talk to the governor and share your story with him, what would you say? What would you say to remind him that what he's doing is not what you would want him to do? I think that first I would I would compliment Governor Hutchinson because um, he has in the past with trans issues sat down with like actual live trans people and learned tried to learn about their experience. That's led him to veto some bills that were then overridden by the legislature. But I, well, I appreciate about him that he he does seem to be willing to learn and to have some sense that he doesn't like know a lot of trans people and like he doesn't know exactly what that experience is about and and so I would I would encourage him to to like stick with it <laughs> like keep learning and then I would just I think I would ask him whether he and and members of his family played sports and what he thinks the purpose of sport is because I think if we approach it from there um, and then we think about who we want like how, how to guarantee the experience of sport for all kids who want it Right. Like, how can we find solutions that serve everybody um, and then explore the option of letting kids and families make decisions with their doctors so that they can stay in that they can stay in that zone, you know, that that we could sync up that legislation to create access instead of syncing up legislation to create barriers and and um, and barriers to like fairness. This is Ozarks at Large. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents Aquila Theater's take on Pride and Prejudice, Thursday, October 27th at 7 p.m. Adapted many times for the screen and stage, this production tells the classic tale of the Bennett sisters with a diverse cast and a modern twist. Tickets and information at 
waltonartscenter.org or 443-5600. Arkansas PBS will present Election 2022, Arkansas PBS Debates, October 17th through the 21st. The debate series will feature 24 candidates in nine races, including Governor, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, Secretary of State, U.S. Senate, and U.S. Congressional Districts. Complete schedule and live streaming information at myarpbs.org elections. Over the past few weeks, Pastor Clint Schneckloth has been giving us some recommendations for fall readings. He returns again today to give another such recommendation to Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums. So far on our autumn reading list, we've heard the word Sally Forth a couple of times. <laughs> we've had some translations. We've visited with Pinocchio. What now? So this one is by uh, Kim Kelly. It's the Untold History of American Labor. The main title is Fight Like Hell. I want to dig into this. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so apparently Kim Kelly became like moderately, I, I guess, internet famous for an essay that she wrote in Teen Vogue first. This is back in the 2010s, like 2018, 2019. And um, uh, the title of the article that was in Teen Vogue was Everything You Need to Know About a General Strike. Not what you would, th- not what I would think anyway. I'm going to see if I open up Teen Vogue. So it is exactly what you might think it is. It's a programmatic essay, you know, kind of lining out what is a general strike, what's the history of general strikes, how do they function, what do you have to, what has to all be put together for a general strike to be effective, how would you prepare for a general strike, you know, all that kind of stuff, and that was like really um, widely read by a lot of working class people because. What we're seeing now is a resurgence for the first time in a long time of organized labor having some wins. Fit, it, the first, the highest approval ratings among general public, this is according to Gallup, of organized labor in 50 to 55 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she's uh, an independent journalist who writes on labor issues. So she's been doing this for a while. She's been She publishes in a lot of the... Uh, magazines that you might imagine would have articles on labor. And the most recent ones that she'd attended to were she'd been in um, some of the bigger cities looking at the uh, strikes that uh, either Amazon workers were doing or Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And so she she had been writing about that. And then she'd gone down to um, Alabama um, and was looking at some coal miner strikes down in Alabama Um, at the time that she was finishing up this book. In fact, that's where the book ends in a way. She's still there with the Alabama coal workers trying to write that story while she's finishing up this more capacious project that she'd taken on, which is um, this fight like hell. Um, And what she does in the book is she, she says she's not trying to write and it, like an overarching, you know, comprehensive history of the labor movement mm-hmm. in the United States. It's more like she's doing a series of interventions of stories that she feels have been undertold or not fleshed out and more just get a footnote in some of the larger works on right. labor organizing. And um, she does it by tr- the trade. Oh, so – stevedores or yeah. coal miners. Or- yeah. So the first few chapters, the, there's a chapter on trailblazers and there's a fir- the first two historical chapters on like garment workers in the early part of 20th century and mill workers. You know, there were some really big tragedies like the triangle the, factory fire. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and then after that kind of history, she'll still kind of flow through history within each chapter depending on what that looks like. But there's chapters on um, miners, harvesters, cleaners, mm. freedom fighters, people who move stuff around, mm-hmm. and then metal workers. So there, there's like a chapter on each. And then at the end, she goes into some of the more um, contemporaries. You know, we think about all of those working class um, trades as being major centers for for organizing. 
There's but, a movement to get, uh, I guess, what we would term as sex workers. So that's or, a chapter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Se- the sex workers is a chapter. Uh, disability rights, mm-hmm. so the disabled worker. And then there's a final chapter on prisoners because there's a big movement right now, which is very hard for them to even work on because of current federal laws about what uh, prisoners can do in terms of organizing, right. you know. Um and so that's where she ends. And then she circles back around to um, this final chapter where she's like, why isn't anybody paying attention to coal workers in Alabama when they're all into the what's happening at Amazon and Starbucks? She also points out one of the problems is, is that there's, there are some assumptions about who coal miners are mm-hmm. uh, as a group, which are not accurate. So there, there's a lot of ge- there's all the genders represented in the coal mines, as well as quite a bit of ethnic diversity. Right. So it's not like if 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 you're worried about writing about a group that's homogeneously one political party or whatever, that's not actually true of coal miners. Uh, and it's a good thing to be reminded of that, no matter the occupational or yeah. vocational category. Yeah. And the book starts with an a foreword by a flight attendant. Who is part part of the who is an organizer within the, that industry, and who knows Kim Kelly uh, personally? And for me, that's especially fascinating because when I think back to the the moment when um, organized labor really had the rug pulled out from under it in the United States, it was Reagan and the uh, airline strikes of the. 80s. Right. Right. The, the airline control. They the Reagan broke that right. strike and new laws were passed at that time that made it a lot harder for organized labor of all sorts. And so it's kind of like cool and helpful to have the voice that opens this book be a mm. flight attendant who is very honest in her opening about how they get treated and what it's like to be a trying to organize as a flight attendant. So it is, it's a, it's a fun read. It's not, so it's one of the things about it is sometimes, I think this is the case, you know, I, 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 I spend time in worker organizing space, right? I, I, when I get the chance, I actually spend time with workers who are organizing and protesting against, uh, you know, corporate greed and, and stuff that's happening in their workplaces. And it can get very serious, it can get very – because because what's happening to people is awful. You're talking about wages right? or working conditions yeah. or health. And the, and the people who are out at the edges, like say the international workers of the world or something like that, are often very radical. And so it's like they're way on the edge, right? And so what I, what I love about this book is this will – is it helps you understand that radicalism – but in a highly readable way. So like a book group could probably read this without feeling like they've picked up a International Workers of the World tract. Right. And being like, what just happened to us? Right. <laughs> Let us go back to our suburban life. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. I know what you mean. The Untold History of American Labor, Fight Like Hell by Kim Kelly. Pastor Clint Schneckloff, thank you for your time. Absolutely. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore, and joining me in the Herald and Blanche Cock News Studio is Timothy Dennis. We're here to talk about a weekend full of music. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, Let's get right into it, then. Okay, let's start with tonight, actually. Okay. Momentous, a four-day electronic music festival, gets underway tonight at the Momentary in Bentonville. All right. Featuring sets today, tomorrow, Saturday, and a free courtyard session Sunday featuring DJ Raquel. Very nice. Artists include Arca, Quartet, and more. Tickets for tonight start at $20 and they uh, go up for the next few days. That gets underway at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, again at the Momentary in Bentonville. All right. And you can find out more about the whole lineup at themomentary.org. Okay. Okay, moving forward to tomorrow. As I've talked with Kyle the past few weeks, the city of Fayetteville, they're having programming in the Lower Ramble mm-hmm. Friday afternoons in the fall. Yeah, I've seen I've seen them setting up as I've gone on my Friday afternoon walks. <laughs> this week, they're featuring the group Route 358. Very good. Great local folk band. Cause this hole I'm standing in, I put 
That gets underway at 4.30 tomorrow at the Lower Ramble in Fayetteville, just a couple blocks over from KUAF. Uh-huh. Uh, also happening in Fayetteville tomorrow night, Smoke and Barrel Tavern is going to have the rock band Stepmom mm. on stage. Cover for that's $10. Gets underway at around 9 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at Smoke and Barrel in Fayetteville. Going over to Eureka Springs, Chelsea's is going to have the band Traveling Squirrels in the house. Okay. That set gets underway at 8 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at Chelsea's in Eureka Springs. Okay, moving ahead to Saturday. Saturday. JJ's Live in Fayetteville is going to have the band Pecos and the Rooftops. Ah. Tickets for that show are $25. That gets underway at 7 o'clock. Saturday at JJ's Live in Fayetteville. Happening at Kingfish Saturday night. Chris Lagerbed will be in the area. Nice. They're also playing a set Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock at Kingfish. Uh, if you're unaware of what they do, it's kind of funk and blues music. I have lost my way. The set Saturday night, though, gets underway at 9 o'clock. Again, that's at Kingfish in Fayetteville. All right. Still in Fayetteville Saturday night, Smoke and Barrel Tavern is going to have the reggae band Irie Lyons on stage. Mm. Cover for that's $5. Gets underway at around 9 o'clock Saturday night, again at Smoke and Barrel in Fayetteville. Nomad's Trailside Saturday night is going to have a rock and roll show featuring the bands Sirens of Titan, Oak Street, and Will Berry. That gets underway at 8 o'clock Saturday evening again at Nomad's Trailside in Midtown Fayetteville. Happening kind of Saturday afternoon is Brews and Tunes. Uh, It's taking place as part of Ozarktober in downtown Springdale. Mm. They are going to feature performances by Letta Joyner, uh, Dino D and the D-Train Band, Sean Michel, and D.K. Harrell. Mm-hmm. Tickets for that are $30. That gets underway at about 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon again in downtown Springdale at Turnbow Park. All right. Happening in Bentonville Saturday evening, uh, it's time for the annual Ozark Blues Society Blues Challenge, where the winner of that, they'll perform at the International Blues Challenge in Memphis in January. Nice. They're going to feature performances by Blue Reed and the Flatheads, Adam Posnick, and the Downtown Livewires. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel right. Don't know what I'm gonna do. I just don't feel right. Saw the doctor today. Tickets for this start at $15. Gets underway at 7 o'clock Saturday night, again at Meteor Guitar Gallery in Bentonville. Happening at the Gravel Bar in Eureka Springs Saturday night, singer-songwriter Joe Mack will be in the house. Mm -hmm. He's from eastern Oklahoma. Something here is missing Is a passion That set gets underway at 7 o'clock Saturday evening at the Gravel Bar in Eureka Springs. Also in Eureka Springs, Saturday, kind of afternoon really, uh, State House Electric will be at Gotthold Brewing. Mm. That again gets underway at 4 o'clock Saturday at Gotthold Brewing in Eureka Springs. Then down in Fort Smith Saturday evening, they are having... Uh, the annual T.J. Cunningham Memorial, which is a fundraiser for T.J.'s guitar and music program. Mm-hmm. All proceeds benefit the Fort Smith Boys and Girls Club. Very good. They're going to have performances from the Cabbage Heads, Big City Moses 2, Mark Albertson and the Groove Diggers, Zoe, and Kimball Davis. 
Tickets for that are $60. That gets underway at 6.30 Saturday night at the Majestic in Fort Smith. Very good. Moving ahead to Sunday, JJ's Live has another big get on their stage, this time Government Mule. Okay, nice. If I were going to be in town, I would likely be at that show because Warren Haynes is a monster. Yeah. Tickets for that are actually $35. Gets underway at 7 o'clock Sunday at JJ's Live in Fayetteville. Also happening Sunday, uh, Meteor Guitar Gallery is going to have a Rockin' for the Ribbon benefit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Proceeds going to Washington Regional Cancer Support Home and Arkansas Children's Hospital Northwest. They're featuring performances from Jenna and the Soul Shakers, Dandelion Hart, Samantha Hunt, Alyssa Galvan, Kurt Hunter, Danny Spain Gang, and DJ Inversion. Tickets for that are $45. That gets underway at 1 o'clock Sunday afternoon, again at Meteor Guitar Gallery in Bentonville. Alrighty. Okay, starting into next week, George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville is going to have Andy Frasco in the UN on mm. stage. Have you ever seen Andy Frasco? Maybe? I haven't. The radio-friendly description I have of his show is that it's highly orchestrated madness. Mm. Can't see. You can chase it down with time. If that's what you need. But if you're looking to change me into the man. Tickets are $22 in advance. They go up to $25 on Monday. That's at 8.30 Monday night again at George's in Fayetteville. Okay, Tuesday. Another show at JJ's Live. Gogol Burdello is going to be in town. Mm-hmm. I stay on the Uh, tickets for that are $30. Gets underway at 7 o'clock Tuesday at JJ's Live in Fayetteville. And Proto Martyr is going to be at George's Majestic yeah, Lounge on Fayetteville Tuesday. There's at least one or two people in this building who are super excited about <laughs> that show. That's $20. That gets underway at 8.30 Tuesday night again at George's in Fayetteville. And still at George's, Wednesday night, John Fulbright is going to be in the house. Man. And he's he's it's a LP release show for his new record, a full band show, and it's presented in conjunction with the Fayetteville Roots Festival. Mm-hmm. Tickets are $20 in advance. They go up to $25 on Wednesday, and that gets underway at 8 o'clock Wednesday night at George's in Fayetteville. And finally... Circle of Thirds will be on stage at 612 Coffee House in Fayetteville Wednesday night. Great local jazz mm-hmm. band. That show gets underway at 6 o'clock next Wednesday, again at 612 Coffee House in Fayetteville. Well, there is not a shortage of things to do, to listen to, a huge variety of stuff to listen to. Timothy Dennis, thank you as always for bringing us uh, the great roundup of music. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Nina Shaker's piece, If These Walls, written in 2021. Nina Shaker's, born in 1995, is a composer who explores the intersection of identity, vulnerability, love, and laughter to create bold and intensely personal works. Her music has been performed by leading artists, including the 
A Philharmonic, Albany Symphony, New World Symphony, Civic Orchestra of Chicago, Eighth Blackbird, International Contemporary Ensemble, Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, and Alarm Will Sound, among others. If this was was commissioned by the Left Coast Chamber Ensemble and premiered by its members, cellist Leighton Funk and Tanya Tompkins. The composer provides program notes for this piece that read, quote, All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put us together again, end quote. That was Nina Shaker's piece for two cellos, If These Walls, written in 2021, performed by cellists Leighton Funk and Tanya Tompkins. Puerto Rican composer Roberto Sierra, born in 1953, is one of the most well-known composers from the island. After studying with Hungarian-Austrian composer Georgi Ligeti, Sierra found himself re-examining classical genres and infusing them with Puerto Rican rhythms and emotions. In his third symphony, La Salsa, written in 2005, Sierra takes us through powerful Caribbean dances. Let us listen to an excerpt from the first movement, Tumbao, interpreted by the Puerto Rico Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Maximiano Valdez. Thank you. 
That was an excerpt from Tumbao, the first movement of Puerto Rican composer Roberto Sierra's Symphony No. 3, La Salsa, written in 2005. I came back recently from a short trip to my country, Colombia. I traveled to say goodbye to my last relative from my parents' generation, my aunt and godmother, La Tia Maritza. While there, I said goodbye again to childhood memories, places, walks that cannot talk, dances, objects. Somebody Better Today is my tribute to her and our time together. I close Somebody Better with British composer Rebecca Dell's In Paradisum, If I Should Go, from Materna Requiem, a piece composed in 2018 as a tribute to her mother, who passed away in 2010. If I should die before the rest of you, break not a flower, nor inscribe a stone, nor, when I'm gone, speak in a Sunday voice, but be the usual selves that I have known. Weep if you must. Parting is hell, but life goes on, so sink as well. Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Pedimeter. Sound Pedimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. This is 91.3 FM, KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Cass. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Kyle Kellums. Sound Perimeter is hosted by Leo Uribe. And don't forget, if you ever miss a story or an episode of the show, you can head on over to OzarksAtLarge.com to catch up on that. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah and is written and performed by Daryl Sean. KUAF's Community Engagement Manager is Jasper Logan. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. with another daily edition of Ozarks at Large. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and please be well.